What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Hello and welcome to season four of the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton. Along with me on this journey of revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Matzik. Hello, Jason. Bill Bant, I wish I were big. That's right, listeners. We are discussing with spoilers aplenty the 1988 comedy Big produced by Gracie Films and distributed by 20th Century Fox. It stars Tom Hanks, Elizabeth Perkins, and Jarrett Rushton. Directed by Penny Marshall, this movie is rated PG with a running time of 1 hour and 44 minutes. It was nominated for two Oscars, Gary Ross and Anne Spielberg for Best Writing, Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen, and Tom Hanks for Best Actor. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 80s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is what's on the box. Take it away, Jason. Tom Hanks is funny in a big way. Tom Hanks shines in this whimsical comedy about a 12-year-old boy whose wish to be big comes true overnight. Suffering the typical frustrations of adolescence, Josh Baskin, Hanks, thinks his problems will disappear if he only were bigger with a little help from zoltar a mechanical carnival genie josh wakes up the next day as a 35 year old man being a grown-up isn't easy when you've never done it before but josh manages to land a job at a toy company here his youthful enthusiasm prompts his boss to rapidly promote him and attracts the amorous attentions of a co-worker elizabeth perkins but also brings hostility from a spiteful rival john hurd and the more Josh experiences the complications of being an adult, the more he begins to yearn for the simple joys of childhood. Sparkling with keen insight and perceptive humor, here is a thoroughly engaging look at what makes us all feel young or old, and what it really takes to be big. Big. So that was What's on the Box. Jason, welcome to Season 4. We made it. We did it. Woohoo! Can't wait to kick this off in a big way. So let us start with earliest memories. Jason, what are your earliest memories of this movie? Yes, Bill Bant, let's do it. Let's get into it. So I'm 14 when this comes out during the summer after my freshman year of high school. So I was definitely the target audience. And I firmly believe I saw this in the theater with my family. I, I don't particularly remember the first viewing experience, but I definitely watched it again a few times on cable afterward. I think of Tom Hanks and just how funny he was. I was aware of and was a fan of the sitcom Bosom Buddies. And I had 
Heck yeah. And I had seen and loved Splash. And I'm pretty sure I was watching either The Money Pit and or Dragnet on HBO when Big came out in the theaters. I did not see Bachelor Party until much later, but needless to say, I was a fan of Tom Hanks. And like everyone else, thought he was extremely likable, relatable, funny, and seemingly very kind. He was just not afraid to be silly or goofy, and it made him vulnerable and really human and fun to watch. No doubt, somewhere in my mind, I knew he was a good actor, but at that time when I was so much younger, I mostly thought of him specifically as a comedic actor. Other than that, earliest memories about the movie Big, I mean, first and foremost, for me, it has to be the iconic big floor piano scene in FAO Schwartz. Can't get around it. It's a wonderful scene. And of course, I remember Zoltar, the game machine, which grants wishes. It can't be overstated. That machine is forever cemented in my mind because of this movie. And every time I see one, I think of Big. And Bill Bant, here's a quick tangent story. I was recently down in Long Beach before going on a brief vacation with friends and family. And at the marina down there, there's a Zoltar machine in the midst of the shops. No way. Yeah. And it's not, of course, the same one as the one in the film. This one does give out fortunes, though. It's not nearly as creepy, no glowing eyes, no quarter slot, thus no quarter rolling down the tiny ramp into Zoltar's mouth. But regardless, I had to put the money in. I think it was like a buck to get the Zoltar Speaks ticket. And I got my fortune, which had to do with a self-reflection, self-reformation, and ultimately self-improvement. Bill Band, I'm actually going to show this to you. Unfortunately, the viewers can't see it at home. But here it is. There's my Zoltar speech. Oh, we're going to have to post that online. Yeah, we're going to have to, for sure. I just had to do it, had to get the ticket. And I've got some great photos of my family and friends next to the machine. Because, of course, I think of Big. And it makes me all warm and fuzzy inside because I love this movie. And uh, yes, more earliest memories. I remember, of course, Josh Baskin. That is Tom Hanks's best friend in the movie. Billy, played by Jared Rushton. Uh, and I remember loving him and how he played an integral part in this. And of course, I remember Elizabeth Perkins as Susan, who works at the Macmillan Toy Company, and how she had this kind of relationship with Josh that was so awkwardly funny at times. And I do, yes, remember the sexual situations that I wasn't actually really looking forward to on this revisit, because I remember feeling awkward at that time. And I didn't want to feel awkward again. But Thankfully, for whatever reason, I, I misremembered how those play out, innocent as they may be, actually. And I just remember Josh basically having the best job in the world and getting to test all the toys and give his feedback. Last thing you know what? I remember my mom absolutely loving the scene when Josh is eating the piece of baby corn as if it were a regular corn on the cob. She just thought that was hilarious, and thus it made it even funnier for me. That's pretty much it for me, according to my memories before watching this. You know, I remember this as just being one of the most easygoing, pretty wholesome, and best feel-good movies of the 80s. What are your earliest memories of Big from 1988, Bill Bant? Yeah, so for me, for this movie... Like you, huge Tom Hanks fan because of Bosom Buddies. I would look forward to summers because they would actually replay Bosom Buddies from seven to eight on one of the UHF's channels. And we would literally play, come in and eat. I would watch Bosom Buddies and then go outside and play until my parents finally called me in. So I love the show. I used to have all the episodes memorized 
Wow. That's how big of a fan I was. That's right. You have an attachment to that show. It's great. It's huge. So anytime Tom Hanks was coming out in something, I was watching it. And I remember with this movie coming out and they kept saying it was one of those body switcheroos. I just, I just call them the Freaky Friday movies. If you remember the Freaky Friday movie with Jodie Foster, I think that was one of the first ones. Might have been a Disney movie. I don't even remember. So we had all these body switching movies coming out. And then we had Tom Hanks doing big, but he wasn't body switching. So that kind of confused me. I'm like, he's not body switching. He's just becoming older. But I didn't see this in the theater. For some reason... I was looking back on 1988. I did not go to the movies at all. Everything was rental that year. I don't I don't know why, but I'll have to figure that out. And then I remember Tom Hanks getting nominated for an Oscar. And just because I was a big fan, he had a win. Even though I hadn't seen the movie at this point yet, but he had a win. He ends up losing, but then I eventually rented it. And like you, piano scene, it is iconic. We will get into it later in the episode. You cannot do an 80s movie montage without seeing a clip of that scene. Yep. Any usually movie montage that's that's in there. That's how big that scene is. So, of course, that scene stands out. Tom Hanks's apartment that he had. I love that apartment. Sure. And just all the toys that he had in there and just how that was all set up. I was always jealous of that. It's like, oh, I'd love to have an apartment like that. Yeah. Just having that cool job of getting paid to play with toys was always amazing. I always wondered also if his idea for the comic books, like the playable comic books, it's like, oh, if that ever worked, because I used to love choose your own adventure books. So that's basically what it's like a digital version of that. I wonder if that would have worked. The limo, him in the limo sticking his head through the, the sunroof. Of course, every time I've been in a limo, that always pops into my head. Not that I'm in a limo a lot, but the few times I have, this the thing is I was like, oh, I just want to put my head through the sunroof and recreate the big scene. I did really enjoy the movie. I thought it was a lot of fun. Just an, another fun film from Tom Hanks. So that's my earliest memories. Hell yeah, man. Yeah, I don't have much to add to that. I appreciate it, man. Are we just ready to jump into the initial thoughts? Yeah, that's the initial thoughts for big. What do you got? Absolutely. Well, let's start with our big star or as he was about to become, if he wasn't already. I mean, this really uh, cemented him as an A-lister. So let's talk about Tom Hanks for a moment as Joshua or Josh Baskin. Of course, we have talked about Hanks in our Splash episode and the Burbs episode. But here's a quick snapshot, once again, of his 80s filmography. He was on an episode of Love Boat. Uh, He did 37 episodes of Bosom Buddies from 80 to 82, an episode of Taxi in 82, an episode of Happy Days in 82 as well, then Splash in 83, a few episodes of Family Ties, then Bachelor Party in 84, The Man with One Red Shoe in 85, Volunteers in 85, The Money Pit in 86, Nothing in Common in 86, a movie called Every Time We Say Goodbye in 86, which I'm not familiar with at all. He did a Dragnet in 87, Big Here in 88, Punchline in 88, The Burbs in 89, and Turner and Hooch, Bill Bant's favorite movie in 89. Ooh. No, no, no. A little groan from Bill Bant right there. You probably uh, know a great deal of his great films. Afterward, uh, he was nominated for Best Actor for this, uh, but as Bill mentioned, he did not win. However, he would go on to win back-to-back Oscars for Philadelphia and Forrest Gump, and most recently he was in the film Elvis, A Man Called Otto, and the Wes Anderson film 
Asteroid City. Let's talk about our director, Penny Marshall, for a moment, also known as an actress, primarily as Laverne from the classic TV show Laverne and Shirley, which aired from 76 to 83. But she was also an acclaimed director, having directed four episodes of Laverne and Shirley herself. Then also in the 80s, she directed Jumpin' Jack Flash and Big. Then in the 90s, Awakenings, A League of Their Own, Renaissance Man, The Preacher's Wife. Then she directed Riding in Cars with Boys with Drew Barrymore in 2001. She went on to direct more episodic TV. And then interestingly enough, she had begun directing the documentary Rodman, starring the one and only Dennis Rodman, the basketball player, former Chicago Bull, which on IMDb says was released in 2020. But I also read that it was unfinished due to the fact that Penny Marshall sadly passed in 2018 at the age of 75. So I'm not sure if that project was taken over by someone else and released or not. I'm still confused. So maybe a listener can chime in on that one. Let's move on to our female lead in this film, Elizabeth Perkins as Susan, an employee, a saleswoman at Macmillan Toy Company. First, I have a question, Bill Bant. Yes. Is Elizabeth Perkins Millie Bobby Brown's mother? Oh, man, that's a good call. They do look alike. <laughs> She's not, of course. However, oh my goodness, it hit me upon re-watching this movie. Wow, she looks like Millie Bobby Brown, famous for Stranger Things. But here is her 80s snapshot. Elizabeth Perkins was in About Last Night in 1986, From the Hip in 87, Big Here in 88, Sweetheart Stance in 88, and a TV movie called Teach 109 in 1989. Outside of that, she might be known for... He said, she said in 91, Indian Summer in 93, and she played Wilma in the Flintstones in 1994. Moving ahead, she was the voice of Coral in Finding Nemo, and she's done plenty of voice work. Uh, she was on 63 episodes of the show Weeds, which, as I recall, was on Showtime. And uh, she's done plenty of episodic TV recently, such as Curb Your Enthusiasm, Sharp Objects, Glow, The Moody's, This Is Us, Barry, Minx, and an episode of The Morning Show. Perkins is now 63 and still doing it and looking good. Also, I just want to give a shout out to Jared Rushton, who plays Billy Kopecky. Just awesome. He's vibrating the whole time. He has a great presence. And overall, great supporting cast with John Hurd, John Lovitz, and Robert Loggia. And I have to say, David Moscow, who plays the young Josh Baskin, is really solid in this, too. I was kind of a standout. I was really impressed with his performance and the brief screen time that he had. Okay, so initial thoughts. Here we go. This movie, for me, is beautifully simple. Even more simple than I had recalled. Hanks is a natural. He plays the innocence to a T. He's completely convincing as a 13-year-old trapped in a 30-year-old's body. So much happens in his eyes, his wide eyes staring in absolute wonderment or confusion or joy or fear at everything as it hits him, his youthful exuberance exercised through his wonderful physicality, and it's consistent throughout the movie. He really masters the movements and facial expressions, and it's in how he runs with his arms flailing or walking or sitting or spontaneously throwing something or fake fighting with an inflatable dinosaur or playing photon laser tag and FAO Schwartz or spitting something up or coughing obnoxiously. Tom Hanks is completely free in his performance in this. It's just a real pleasure and a blast to watch. Also, and importantly, I totally buy his relationship to his best friend, Billy. They 
are on equal ground. Simply put, in the first three quarters of the movie, I just believe he's a kid in every scene. And his chemistry, Billy, is important for what happens later in the movie. And when you see him after he's quote-unquote become a man, if you know what I mean, the transition is clear. And it's interesting because I didn't like it. I didn't want to see him acting like a grown-up. Not just because that's not who he really is in the movie, but because that's not fun. It was a palpable feeling when he starts like kind of maturing in the movie. And it's a testament to Hanks' performance. It's really interesting watching this today because... Now I can see the film is not perfect, of course. I mean, I feel terrible for Mrs. Baskin, played by Mercedes Rule, who thinks her son has been kidnapped. And the film clearly flies through, skips over, or completely ignores certain details as to how Josh is actually surviving on his own or on his diet in a 30-something-year-old body or how he's able to cash a check with whatever ID he had or get a job based on a chicken scratched resume or get a fancy super expensive high-rise apartment in downtown new york city based on having a job for what a few weeks maybe or the numerous red flags regarding the sexual relationship with susan etc look we can see how this might be reworked if it were rebooted today but and this is a big but this movie is all about the magic it makes clear that the premise is ridiculous and awesome and fantastical. It's one giant what if. What if this happened and that happened? And how would this man-child react to these things happening to him? And how would this energy or his energy affect the adults around him? Here's an initial thought. As a 14-year-old, weirdly enough, I didn't find Elizabeth Perkins that attractive. But I didn't find her unattractive. But today, Bill Bant, very attractive. I like Elizabeth Perkins a lot in this. I think she's adorable, cute. She's hot. She's great. Ultimately, I want to backtrack here for a moment and say that she's actually quite good as an actress in this playing off of Tom Hanks. She brings it. So ultimately, ladies and germs, this movie makes me feel young again, really young. It gives me a bittersweet twinge, a wistful yearning for those younger years riding bikes in the suburbs and having a best friend to do everything with and having a crush on the girl at school. And it does make me think about how we tell kids not to grow up too fast and to take every advantage you have of being a kid. This movie would be a tragedy if Josh didn't get back to being the younger version of himself. But ultimately, this movie, for me today, remains purely entertaining. And I laughed out loud more than a few times. This theatrical version is a quick watch at an hour and 44 minutes, and I had fun revisiting it. Those are my initial thoughts. How about you, Bill Bant? Yeah, for me, watching this movie um, all these years later, I think the big thing I got out of it was this movie really was the launching pad for Tom Hanks' career. Because yeah. you you mentioned those movies from Splash. Bachelor Party, all right, we like it. Man with One Red Shoe, bombed. Volunteers, bombed. Money Pit was okay. Nothing in common, bombed. Every time we say goodbye, you didn't even heard of the movie, so that shows you that was. And then Dragnet, which was a good cast, but let's be honest, that it was just I Akra gives a great performance, but yeah, that yeah. has a terrible story. So yeah, he could have kept making these kind of movies and had a decent career, but big launched him into what we know Tom Hanks is today. And that was huge. That was really the big turnaround because after that, like if you think of Tom Hanks' career, yes, he was in the 80s, but his career was really 90s. And the 80s was just kind of, uh, I, I don't know, it's like minor leagues for him. And then big is when he gets the big call up. 
because then after that you have you know punchline the burbs was a lot of people like we weren't big fans then the disaster that was um bonfire of the vanities yeah and then he starts putting out hit after hit after hit so that was really surprising just being because being a kid and being such a fan i didn't care whatever he was on screen i was going to watch it and like it with my rose colored glasses but then watching this and preparing for the podcast i was like whoa if he doesn't do this movie where does his career go you'd be doing this podcast like yeah what happened to tom hanks no pun intended this is a big movie for him this really put him yeah put him in the spotlight so that was a a big initial thought watching this movie i forgot there was a dad in this movie so that was kind of funny because we're always speaking of mercedes rules as the mom and she has a bunch of scenes i was like wait what happened to the dad and then i think we just see him in the carnival scenes and that's it and there's no really mention of the dynamic of what's happening with the parents it's just it always just deals with the mom so i thought that was kind of strange but i think the most interesting thing about the movie you were talking about tom hanks's performance that's a very hard thing to do to be a 31 year old and trying to be a 13 year old and i would say 90 percent of the time you got it right there's a couple scenes i'm like eh, he's acting like a seven-year-old or he's just because I have kids around that age mm-hmm. and I just know I'm like a uh, 13 year old probably wouldn't act like that. But for the most part, he certainly pulls it off. And I just like that the premise is just different. It's simple. Like you said, instead of doing the body switching things, trying to focus on two stories, they just focus on one and it's Hank's growing up. And like you said, there's a lot of suspension of disbelief in this movie of how all this stuff can happen but it's still a fun watch i totally agree moscow and jarrett awesome together i totally believe those two those two were friends yeah yeah i love that opening montage of the two of them just kind of hanging out and that just reminded me of being a kid with my friends especially there's that scene when moscow's opening the uh, bubblegum pack and he's going through the cards he's like got that got that oh need that need that i'm like oh my god i remember doing that that's just awesome yeah yeah and i'm elizabeth perkins i'm right there with you she is amazing this the two of them have amazing chemistry together it was kind of fun seeing how josh starts becoming an adult josh like we don't want it to happen and he almost loses sight of i'm just trying to do this again and so i find this zoltar machine and become young again but he's now so caught up in this toy world that he loses his way um so i thought that was kind of interesting i'm like because it doesn't really give you a time frame of how long this is happening. I mean, they tell you six weeks until they get the information, but mm-hmm. it could be longer. And it does seem longer. It almost seems like he's been at this for three to four months. And that's a long time to try to adjust to the adult world and have to get by. So I'm sure you do get corrupted by, and we were kind of talking about this with trading places, nature versus nurture. And this kind of happens to Josh. Where he gets caught up in this world, which he loves doing, he loves, you know, he's got a job playing with toys, but then he's actually turns to the business side of it. Now he's going to try to create them and have to put a marketing presentation together and, and all that kind of stuff. So I was kind of neat to kind of see his turn and kind of lose sight. Billy kind of has to pull him back. But overall, big, biggest fun. That's it. And back to the point of this movie being simple and straightforward, it, it still is not without a positive message. You talk about how he you know is now playing the role of an adult and at first just kind of fumbling his way through things somewhat with the help of billy who's cutting class and assisting him you know just to get through the day and finding a hotel etc 
and getting the job and all that, which is a lot of fun. But then he starts acclimating and when he then has to do adult things and starts getting used to it, you start losing the innocence. You start losing that child inside of you. And that's kind of one of the messages. And it's up to Billy to kind of snap him out of it, to bring him back. This movie could have gone a lot of different ways with, like you said, if it were this time span of three to four months, Josh would have a lot of different experiences as an adult and probably would have tried a lot of different things outside of having a romantic relationship with Susan. Um, And there's all kinds of things you'd be exposed to as an adult. Is an independent adult in downtown New York City in 1988? I mean, come on. Yeah. But really what he's exposed to is, like you said, the workplace and making money and engaging in intimacy. So that's about it. That's enough for this film. It doesn't have to cover the whole spectrum of being adult. Let's have some fun with this, see where this takes us. And then we got to get him back to being a kid at the end. So I appreciate that. Yeah, because one of the things I like too, and I wish I touched on a little bit more, is how his innocence touches on the people that he meets. Right. Certainly with Susan makes a big change of her and the owner of the company, McMillan. But I would love to have seen more of how his interaction changes the culture of the toy company. I wish they got into that a little bit more, but it was fun when they showed those moments. I agree. I agree. The youthful exuberance, once again, is invigorating. It brings a whole new, fresh perspective to this particular workplace. And I love Robert Loggia, and he's so likable as the owner because he welcomes that fresh perspective. He feels it's you know much needed. Otherwise, what are you doing? You're just going through the motions, going to work and paying the bills, et cetera. And it's very freeing, the whole thing, I think. Yeah, it just it feels good to act like a kid once in a while, right? Oh, yeah. I definitely became a huge Robert Loggia fan after this. Even sure. if he was a bad guy, good guy, didn't matter. I yeah. always liked him. I just always imagined him dancing on a piano. So let's move on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of your favorite scenes and moments from Big All right. Well, I'm going to start with my first favorite scene, which is Josh's first night at the St. James Hotel. And just to get our audience caught up, and I do like to do a little bit of this introduction into the movie so people get the setup, right? Well, at this point, Josh Baskin, who we know is this 13-year-old who has his best friend, Billy, I think it's, is it Kopecky? Is that how you say his last name? That sounds right. Well, they're hanging out, and we know that Josh has a crush on this young lady, Cynthia, from school. And it's just like Bill said, it's fun to see these two young boys hanging out as best friends. And we cut to Josh and his parents going to the local carnival. This is basically a suburb of New York City. So there's this big roller coaster, and Josh wants to ride the roller coaster, and he sees, well, The reason why he wants to ride the roller coaster is because he sees Cynthia standing in line and he wants to also prove his bravery to get on the roller coaster. And and so he sneaks into line next to her. And then, of course, another taller young gentleman joins them. And it turns out that I think we're led to believe Cynthia might be hanging out with seeing or possibly dating this older boy named Derek who can drive. Well, They get to the actual entrance to the ride, and unfortunately, Josh is too short to get on the ride. And it's embarrassing, and he has to walk away from the line, and now he's completely dejected. 
he feels, of course, as we all do when we're 13, right? Like our life is over. Now we've been embarrassed in front of our major school crush and the world is ending. So he ends up walking to the edge of the carnival where seemingly in the spotlight and the glow of the night is this lone game machine called Zoltar. And of course, he walks up to the machine. And as we all know, he puts the quarter in and he makes the wish, I wish I were big. And then the machine spits out the little piece of paper, which uh, says Zoltar speaks, I believe, on one side. And then on the other side, it says your wish is granted. And thus cut to... Next morning, he wakes up as a 30-something old man. <laughs> he's not old. He's about, we're, we're going about 30, 31. We know Tom Hanks, as Bill mentioned, was 31 when uh, he was in this movie. So I'm going to kind of skip over some details just to get to it here. Josh, a.k.a. Tom Hanks, makes an attempt to explain things to his mom, but he's in a 30-year-old body. So she, understandably, when sees him, Freaks out. She thinks that he's an intruder and that he's kidnapped her son. So Josh goes running out and he goes to school and has to kind of sneak around, sneak in, corner his best friend, Billy Kopecki, and convince him that he is who he says he is. Because Billy freaks out. He thinks there's this old guy about to, who knows what, attack him or whatever in this in the equipment room with the door locked behind him. And then... Josh begins singing their song, Shimmy Shimmy Coco Pop, and Billy realizes, oh my God, this is my best friend, Josh Baskin, in a 30-year-old's body. And now Billy is determined to help him. So Billy goes home and packs a suitcase full of what we assume is his own father's clothes for Josh, and he steals the emergency fund, which is a bunch of cash from his father's sock drawer, in order to give it to Josh for spending money and... He tells Josh he's going to need to lay low in the city until they find and locate the Zoltar machine and reverse the wish. Because what's happened here is that the carnival packed up and moved. So the Zoltar machine is no longer in the same place. And so they got to find it in order to reverse this wish. Now, Billy and Josh end up taking a bus to downtown New York City, and they need to find a cheap hotel for Josh to stay in for the night. And thus... After passing a deranged homeless man and some sex workers, they find the St. James Hotel. And Billy's like, oh, this one looks all right. And Josh is like, no, it doesn't. Billy's like, well, St. James, Josh, it's religious. So they go inside and Josh and Billy pay $17.50 for the room for a night. It's a $10 deposit for the sheets. Ew. That must mean the sheets often get destroyed in this hotel for one reason or the other. The hotel clerk himself has no front teeth. Not a good sign. Awesome. We find out Josh's room is at the end of the hallway next to a bathroom where someone named Angel has taken residence for some reason. And there's also a payphone directly next to Josh's hotel room door. Josh is extremely nervous. And Billy says he's got to leave because he's got to be home by 10 p.m. You got to realize there it's like the middle of the night. And granted, Josh is in this adult's body now, but... Billy's got to go home, but he says he'll be back the next day. He's going to cut class, and he'll be back there the next morning by 8.30 a.m. And Josh is kind of freaking out, and he's looking around his hotel room, and he's like, I, I can't sleep here. And Billy says, maybe it's better if you don't, meaning you shouldn't sleep because danger lurks everywhere around the corner. 
he looks at the lock and Billy says, uh, I'd use the chain if I were you. So don't just lock the deadbolt, but use the chain on top of it. Josh is obviously uneasy. He locks the door after Billy leaves. It's, this is a great little touch. He actually locks the deadbolt backwards because Josh has never been in this position before. He's never locked a door like this before. But so then he locks it the correct way, forgets to lock the chain. He takes one of the sheets to go make the bed and he hears arguing outside the window, followed by a gunshot. And he quickly shuts the window. Then he hears someone get on the payphone outside his door. And that person is just yelling really loud in Spanish. And this is why I'm calling out this scene. It's really heartbreaking. But Josh sits down on the chair in this room all by himself in the middle of New York City as a 13-year-old kid trapped in this adult's body. And he finally breaks down. He starts weeping. He's scared to death. And he quickly moves the vanity dresser to block the door. And then he jumps onto the bed in the fetal position and, and softly cries for his mom. It's tough. It's tough to watch. And you ask, well, then, Jason, why did you choose this as one of your favorite scenes? Well, it's because Tom Hanks is freaking brilliant. And we see how vulnerable he is in this moment. And we're truly scared for him. I was. And we imagine being in that position as a 13-year-old all alone in the city under these wild circumstances. Everything is out of control. And again, yeah, I just appreciate Hanks's performance in this because your heart breaks for him. And this is where it's just one scene where you are completely invested now in this. And is he going to be okay? How is he going to be okay? Is he going to get through the night? But you're in. You're connected to this character emotionally. And I'm just going to say this real quick. At least there are callbacks later to him, that being Josh, in this room, which are much lighter because he's now getting used to being adult with the help of Billy. And we see him later in the room adapting to the gunshots that he had heard outside by watching The French Connection on TV. Which he, And there's plenty of gunshots in that movie. So that distracts him. And then, of course, there's a great... And almost another iconic scene from this is the uh, silly string fight he has with Billy in the room. He's getting used to living in a hotel room in downtown New York City. It's not quite as bad as it starts off to be. But I just wanted to call out this initial scene for Hanks's performance because now he's off in the big city all by himself. And it's intimidating, to say the least. It's a good call on that one because you do really feel for Hanks when he jumps on the bed, just puts the sheet down enough just to kind of cover his body for that disgusting mattress and is in tears because he's alone. His parents don't believe him. He doesn't know what's going to happen next. Who knows how many times he's been to New York? Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Philadelphia, but I didn't live like in, in the city. I lived outside of it. So I, I didn't go into the city that much. So I wouldn't know my way around if I was 13 years old to try to find where do I get something to eat? The fact he's so scared in the bath, I wouldn't even go to the bathroom. You know, I, I was even thinking right. that I'm like, does, does he just pee in the sink? I, I, I Honestly, that's what I would have probably done at that point. I'm so scared. And you're just counting down the hours until... Billy comes back the next morning, hoping that you're going to find that machine. You just feel all that there with him just lying in the bed like that. So it is very emotional and impactful, even all these years later watching it. Yeah, you know, it's great. There's little things that are smart. You give credit to Penny Marshall's direction and his performance, that being Tom Hanks. And like you said, just 
he doesn't even cover the bed with the sheet. He doesn't take the time to do that because he's just freaked out. He just wants to lay down and wants the whole thing to be over. When he reaches to pull down the blind over the window, it gets caught under the pillow. And the whole thing is just kind of awkward and awful. So, yeah, your heart just goes out to him in that situation. Yeah, and even from a, a writing standpoint, because usually you have your all is lost moment, usually at the end of the second act. We're just finishing up the first act and he's already all is lost. So it's like, <laughs> all right, what's going to happen through <laughs> yeah. the next two acts of this movie? Everything that go wrong for him at this point is gone wrong by making a wish that he thought was actually going to make his life better. It's done the exact opposite. So yeah, he's had his all his lost moment already. Yeah. So we're on his side. We just, we want to see Josh Baskin do well and survive the night, which he, of course he does. Thankfully, Billy comes back in the yes. morning. So you had a moment next? I Yeah. Next. I just want to call out this moment real quick. We have the wonderful John Lovitz wonderful SNL alum appearing here as the character Scott Brennan, who works in data processing here at the McMillan Toy Company. And he's in the cubicle next to Josh on his first day at work. And yes, Josh is also computer operator slash data processor. Well, he engages in a conversation with Scott. And it's just great because we have Tom Hanks with this youthful kind of uh, spirit and very innocent and asking questions and wanting to make friends. And John Lovett seems to be pretty warm and trying to, to tell him, well, you need to don't get so anxious about entering all the data. You're going to make us look bad. You know, take your time, just slow down. So he's already kind of making a friend at work. And, and this character of Scott, played by John Lovett, is trying to show him the ropes a little bit. And he even does him a favor by Pointing off down the hallway and pointing out a particular attractive woman that's standing there in her uh, professional skirt and high heels. And John Lovitz says to Josh, see that girl over there in the red? Say hi to her and she's yours. She'll have her legs around you so tight you'll be begging for mercy. And Josh responds innocently, well, I'll stay away from her then. It totally goes over his head. He doesn't get the point. And the reason why I'm calling out this moment is for John Lovitz's reaction to that. When Josh says, well, I'll stay away from her then, it's awesome. It's this extended stare that John Lovitz gives Tom Hanks as in, what? No, you didn't get it. But he doesn't say that. He just stares at him and it's like a three or four second long stare and he barely shakes his head like uh, blown away and then he just goes back to his desk and it's wonderful. I laughed out loud. I've watched, I watched the movie twice and I laughed out loud hard every time at John Lovitz's reaction to Hanks in this. He has a very small part, but he's great in this in the brief time that he has on screen. Yeah, I kind of laughed at the scene, too, because I know if John Lovitz had said that to me, I would have probably said the same thing. Oh, I'll stay away from her then. Right, right. Yep. I was like, oh, yeah, perfect line. Great writing. It's really funny. We know that Josh on the inside is just a little kid and doesn't get the sexual innuendo or suggestion that Scott is making. Yeah, because there's a callback because they have a corporate party. He totally avoids her. <laughs> yep. He's like, er. <laughs> yes. So my first favorite scene, and it's your one of your favorite scenes too. It's everybody's favorite scene, and it's the keyboard scene at FEO Schwartz. Heck yeah. And the scene's set up with Tom Hanks. It's the weekend. He's off the job, and he's walking by FEO Schwartz, and... Sees that it's a toy store and he decides to go in. 
And when he's in there, he's having a fun old time. He's riding on stuffed animals. He starts making friends with the kids in the store and he's playing laser tag and literally playing laser tag in the store. They're shooting each other. And he's like, I got you. No, you didn't. You got me. And so then there's a scene when Hanks is slowly moving around the store, trying to find this other kid to shoot him. And the kid gets him first. Josh falls to the ground and starts flopping like he's dead. And while I he's love flopping it. there. <laughs> We have the owner of McMillan Toys, played by Robert Loja, is standing over him and says, hey, don't you work for me? And Josh sees that, yes, that is his boss because he literally ran into him earlier in the movie on his first day at the job when he was trying to fax some papers and knock the boss over. Um, luckily, he still has his job. So he was a little embarrassed by that. And now, again, he's met the boss twice and finds himself in an embarrassing situation. So, you know, he gets up and Loja asks him what he's doing there. And he just says, hey, I'm, you know, I'm just I'd like to hang out in the toy store and see what's going on. And McMillan says, oh, yeah, I like coming here, too, just to see what the kids are into. So McMillan asks him to take a walk and they're walking around the store and McMillan's asking him about some of the toys. And Josh, being a 13 year old, is really giving him a perspective of toy lines and toys and what he likes about them and what he dislikes. And they're in the middle of a conversation and they're about to walk away. And Josh accidentally steps on this musical keyboard and it's a huge keyboard. It is probably about six feet long. Josh's reaction, he's never seen this before. And he starts tapping it and laughing. And McMillan is watching him and sees it's kind of interesting to see his reaction to this. And Josh has been carrying a bag with him. And he just whips it away, gets on one side of the keyboard and runs across it and slides and makes all this noise. And McMillan kind of laughs, but he kind of wants to move on. But Josh wants to start playing it. So he starts tapping some of the keys and he starts playing a song. It's called Heart and Soul. And McMillan recognizes it right away and asks Josh, oh, you took piano lessons? And Josh responds with, yeah, three years. And he starts playing the opening notes to Heart and Soul. And McMillan goes, yeah, I used to take piano lessons myself. And because the keyboard is so big, Josh is playing basically the keys of your left hand while McMillan starts playing the keys of what would be your right hand with their feet and they're dancing on the keyboard and they start playing heart and soul and we have the tune and they're playing it together in unison and they both are pretty good about it and I think that's one of the things I like about the scene too is they're not perfect but you know what the tune is and and you're getting into it and the people in the store are getting into it they get through that, and McMillan, instead of stopping, was like, hey, let's do chopsticks. So now they start doing chopsticks. Dun, 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 dun. Like, probably one of the first things you would learn if you took piano lessons. And they're excited about that because they have to do these huge jumps across the keyboard to hit some of the keys, and the, and the audience in the store are starting to clap, and then they're in awe of it. And then they finish it, everyone applauds, and McMillan's like, we need to talk. And because of this interaction josh ends up getting a promotion in the company because they asked you know what business are you and he's like computer he's like now that's not where you're supposed to be so what's great about the scene not just the piano playing itself it is how the innocence of josh 
rubs off on other people, especially McMillan right. in this scene, because McMillan is a toy maker, but he's around like stuffy corporate people all the time who are doing market reports and research. And instead of just having someone who just literally goes into a store and just starts playing with stuff and just sees how they react. And it brings out McMillan's inner child. It's something that he recognizes like, oh, this is what we've been missing. We need something like that. I think that's just what gives the, the scene a lot of heart. But it's a sweet scene. It's a fun scene. It makes you smile scene. It's an iconic scene. Just watching them, two of them work together. Technically, the age difference is like 45 years. And they work together right away and put together this performance for the store. And it doesn't get any better than that. Nailed it, Bill Bant. I love that relationship building there between Mr. McMillan and Josh. They're not perfect, but they're pretty darn near perfect playing that song. And it, it is a great scene. Man, they're just great. It's so fun to watch the crowd gathering behind them as they continue to play the song and they're jumping around and they get a little physical. They got to spread their legs and jump around and, and hit certain notes. And it just brought back some memories for me because I took many, many piano lessons as a child. I played piano for some time and of course, I remember playing Heart and Soul and the very famous Chopsticks. That was always a go-to. That was an easier one to play. I just remember watching this, being fascinated by that walking piano. A little trivia here. The walking piano, or big piano, uh, was actually created by Remo Saraceni and first installed in the toy store F.A.O. Schwartz in New York City in 1982. So yeah, can't get enough of this scene. As much as we've seen it before, Watch it again. Go back and watch it. Watch it on YouTube. Do what you ever do. It will make you smile, just like Bill Bant said. And that's the whole point of this movie. Now, I want to take it back a little bit, man. When he goes into FAO Schwartz and he's playing the Photon Laser Tag mm -hmm. game, that brought back some memory. I loved Photon Laser Tag. I love just Laser Tag in general. I'm sure at some point I wanted that particular laser tag set. I ended up getting the actual standard laser tag, and I had everything from the rifle to the guns to the vest to the helmet, all that wow. stuff for laser tag. And I would play with my friends in the church across the street or around the church at night. Like It was intense. We'd have laser tag battles all the time. Huge fan. That brought back some memories. But the subtlety here is what I love is that it's just injected throughout. It's... Josh being a kid and how he introduces himself to the other kid in the store because they both have the photon laser tag gear on. And he's like, what's your name? I'm Jordan. I'm Josh. That's what kids do. If you've been around kids that meet each other at a playground, that's they just want, they all want to play. Hopefully, if they're all nice kids and know how to socially interact, they go onto the playground. I've seen this. They're just like, hey, do you want to play? Yeah. What's your name? Jordan. What's your name? Josh. Okay, let's go. And that you're in and now you're friends and you're doing the thing. And that's what happens here. And when he's gets kind of fake shot by the laser and uh, falls down on the ground, he's on the floor in the store <laughs> flailing about. It's fantastic. So I love that. And then at the end, it's funny because we know that Mr. McMillan can see that Josh could be of more use than what he's doing in data processing at the company. And the last line Mr. McMillan says is, you just saved me a trip to the gym because they've been jumping around on the walking piano the whole time. And Bill Bant, my question is, do you think that this particular scene may have inspired 
the exercise video games of the future. Oh, yeah. You know, like Dance Dance Revolution, which you loved watching people play in the arcade. And that was more recent years. Yeah, I definitely think so. Right? Yeah. I would think this had to have been one of the first and probably one of the reasons why the uh, walking piano was even developed is that you would get a little exercise. And it's not just a novelty. Well, it was funny because doing the research for that, for the original walking piano, it didn't play notes like a piano did. It just did sound effects. Mm -hmm. And Penny Marshall's like, no, we need it to play like a piano. So they had to rewire it or redesign it so it would play keys like you right. hear in a real piano. So that was kind of interesting. And then going back to Josh making friends in the store, it does remind me of my son because he'll do that. We'll go somewhere and he'll make friends really easy, playground, wherever. But the thing he does not do is he never asks what the other kid's name is. Like, he'll come over and like, I made a friend. I'm like, oh, what's his name? I don't know. I'm like, well, why don't you go find out? Oh, and really? he'll run off and be like, what's your name? That's funny. Yeah, he'll just play. I guess for some kids, it's not as yeah. important to know the other person's name. Just the other kid. Look, he's asking names. That's great, man. I, you know, the last thing I'll say about this scene is when Josh is talking about the championship hockey game and describing why it's not as good anymore because the players only spin, they don't move back and forth. You, you used to be able to slide them back and forth. One of the first games I can ever remember playing at my house in Lindenhurst, Illinois, I believe it belonged to my dad and probably my grandfather before that if I'm not mistaken, but it was a Bobby Hull hockey game. It was a stand-up game. It had like a bubble on the top and the players, you could slide them back and forth and spin them too and hit the hot little black hockey puck. It was the coolest thing. Yeah. I loved that game as a really, really little kid. I think we had to get rid of it at some point. It ended up in a garage sale, unfortunately. But Yeah, that thing took Hull. a lot of space. Yeah. Like we had the ones that didn't have the bubble on it, but it was more of the board, but you could slide the players. Yeah. I knew what he was talking about. Absolutely love that as a kid. All right, moving on. Uh, my next thing is a moment. Uh, it just made me laugh out loud. So Josh has gotten the promotion at McMillan, and they're doing a corporate party. I'm not sure if it's a holiday party, but we'll just, we'll just say it's a corporate party, and everybody's there, and they're just doing their boring spiel of talking to each other. So it almost feels like it's at the office, except everybody's wearing nice tuxes, and there's fancy food. And then Josh shows up. The elevator's open. And Josh comes out. It almost looks like a matador outfit. And <laughs> yeah. everybody just turns and looks and they're starting to laugh. And of course, Josh is happy to be there and he's just trying to wave and he's coming down the stairs and he realizes everyone's kind of looking at him funny. And what's just great is he gets to the bottom of the stairs and doesn't realize it's because of what he's wearing. And he just checks his fly just to see if his zipper's down. That moment just cracked me up because... I've been busted with the fly down once or twice in my life. I think that would have been my first go-to also, not realizing I'm wearing the most ridiculous tux in the world. Oh, man, it's great. Gosh, this movie's loaded. It all is so much fun. When he's coming down and that you're like, oh, my God, he looks ridiculous. He's amazing. But he still wears it well. And the thing is, it just all works. It all works because... He's so innocent, he doesn't know any better. He thinks the suit probably super cool, then notices everybody looking at him like he's this odd duck. But they think, oh, look at this guy who's just ultra confident, like he's owning it. Yep. He, but he just doesn't know any better, which is great. It's a white, let's say tux, with gold, right. trim, gold trim and design. Yeah. And the gold trim is almost like a sparkly sequence. Yeah. It's got the jacket, it's got the vest, it's the white shirt. 
it, he's all jacked out in white. It's amazing. Yeah, and Mr. McMillan is just like loves it. Yep. Absolutely loves it because here comes this breath of fresh air into this stuffy scenario. And he comes down the stairs, he walks up to him and he's like, nice suit. It's like, yeah, I, I, I rented it. <laughs> I'm glad you called that out. Did you have something else next? Yeah. So we got a, another scene with me and that's Susan comes over for a sleepover. Oh yeah. Here we go. At the end of the party, Josh is kind of rubbing off on Susan too. And Susan's in a relationship with Paul and she's kind of bored with this party. So she grabs Josh and is like, Hey, let's take off together. And they go to leave and they get in the limo and Susan's pouring her heart out to Josh about her relationship, her situation with the company and all that kind of stuff. And Josh is not paying attention because it's probably his first time in the limo and he's playing with all the buttons. And he, of course, plays with the sunroof. And we have the scene where he sticks his head through the top and Susan's kind of confused because she's trying to bare her soul and Josh isn't paying attention, but she's attracted to how Josh is. He lets all this stuff just kind of roll off the back. And when they're driving along the limo, Josh mentions, oh, we just passed my apartment. And he's no longer at St. James. He's got this huge, awesome loft and he's packed it with toys and um, it's a giant playland for him. So Susan's like, oh, let's go check out your place. So they go to Josh's place and tries to find out if Josh is in a relationship and Josh's confused by what Susan's saying, and he says he's all alone, meaning Josh left his family because he grew big and no one believes him, not if he's married or has a girlfriend. He's not catching on to that. So they go up to his room, his apartment, and he's trying to get in the door, and Susan's now a little uncomfortable, and she's like, oh, I'm not sure we should do this, and Josh responds with, do what? And Susan goes, well, I like you, and I want to spend the night with you. And of course, 13-year-old Josh is thinking, oh, you mean like a sleepover? <laughs> and Susan's not understanding what Josh is saying. She's answering what she thinks Josh's statement is, not really what Josh's statement is, if that makes sense. And she goes, well, yeah. And Josh gets really excited and goes, okay, but I get to be on top. And of course, she thinks Josh is stating what position he wants to be in if she sleeps, sleeps over. And that's not what Josh means. And then they go into the apartment and Susan is flabbergasted. She sees that his bed is a bunk bed. He has toys all over the place. She goes, is that a trampoline in your apartment? And he's like, oh, yeah. And Josh turns around and goes, hey, do you want a drink? And over in the corners, there's a Pepsi machine. And Josh takes a rolled up sock and throws it at the machine and out pops a Pepsi. And he's like, yeah, I rigged it up so it you don't need to use quarters. And he gives Susan the Pepsi and she walks with it for about three steps and then puts it down. Once again, they look at the trampoline and Josh is like, hey, you want to jump on the trampoline? And Susan's what? He's like, yeah. He's like, let me take my big balls off first. And he, he jumps on the trampoline and there's all these huge different various side balls and he kicks them all off. He's like, come on, come on, come on, come on, on the trampoline. And Susan doesn't want to do it. He's like, no, no, come on, come on, it'll be fun. She's like, fine. It's <laughs> great visual where Josh grabs Susan by the hands and literally drags her onto yeah, the trampoline. That's a great moment. Great and moment. And she just kind of like face flops into the trampoline. And then Josh gets to the side and goes, yeah, jump, jump, jump. And Susan's like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Like, no, no, it's fun. Jump, 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 jump. So she kind of bounces on it. She doesn't jump. And he's like, 
oh, come on, you want to jump? Just jump. He's like, I'll jump with you. So he starts jumping. She starts jumping. They start holding hands and they jump higher and higher. And the more they're jumping, she's really getting into it. She's really having a good time. She's letting out her inner child. Once again, just like McMillan with the pianos, Susan is showing her inner child with the trampoline. And now they're bouncing up and down, bouncing up and down. So it cuts to just a little time jump. And we see Susan in the bottom bunk and she's wearing a jersey and she's got the blanket and she's kind of positioned herself. Even though it's a small bunk bed, she's got herself positioned to make some room for hopefully Josh to share with her. Here comes Josh in his, I think it's Voltron pajamas, his little button down pajamas. And he sees Susan in the bed and he starts running at her but ends up leaping onto the top bunk. And he's like, good night. And the lights go out. And Susan's just lying in the bottom bunk like, what the hell is going on? And then we see Josh poke his head from the top bunk, looks down at her, and he has his two hands. She's like, pick a hand. And she picks a hand and he opens it and there's nothing there. And I was like, uh-huh, got you. He's like, go ahead, try again. He picks the other hand and there's, I don't think there's anything in that one either. And then he opens his hand and, and gives her a ring. And he says to her, it's a glow-in-the-dark compass ring, so you don't get lost. And she takes it, and he puts it on her. And he's like, all right, good night. And then gets up on the bed and goes to sleep. And Susan just kind of gives that, what just happened? But she's somewhat charmed by it, too, because I think maybe she thought he was being a gentleman and actually liked that they just had a fun night and not maybe did something she would have regretted the next morning. Yeah. I mean, what can you say? It's so much fun, and it has that kind of innocent ending, which it could have been really awkward if done differently, but it's smartly written. There's so many mixed signals going back and forth. It's so much fun. Like you you said, the conversation they have in the elevator going up to his loft, I mean, the lines between them, the spoken lines, they make sense, but we understand that Susan is just continually confused, but then it makes sense, then she's confused, and then... But to Josh, everything's great. Do you want to see my room? I got cool stuff. And I love it because he's been doing pretty well now as the vice president of product development. And he's got a lot of expensive stuff in there. The fact that he has a whole Pepsi machine in his apartment is awesome. Yeah. So again, you know, she wants something to drink, like a glass of wine, but he gets her a Pepsi and all these little things. But the trampoline scene is great. I love what you said when he drags her up onto the trampoline, just pulls her by an arm like she's just some other little kid. And she's lying face down and has to reach her arm in the air and go, can you help me up? (laughs) It's like, oh yeah, sure. A lot of nice little moments and still has that romantic element to it because it's a different kind of romance. And that's what I think you're alluding to at the end of the scene is what she appreciates. They didn't move too fast. It ended up being a surprisingly light and fun evening. And how refreshing is that? Probably then makes her even more endeared to him and more attracted to him. She's great. It all just works. Just works. Great scene. All right. Jason, what do you have? Yeah, let's keep going with the romance of it all. So I'm going to go into their next date, or actually I should say their first official date. So this is Josh goes on his date with Susan to Seapoint Park, which otherwise is known as Playland in Ray, 
New York. I think it's in Long Island, but in the film, it's called Seapoint Park. It's an amusement park. Well, they go on this date and they go on a roller coaster ride and they're screaming their heads off and having a blast. And it makes me miss roller coasters. I want to go to Six Flags as soon as possible now. And of course, when the ride is over, Josh is like, you want to go again? And she gives him that look like, are you crazy? There's a nice moment, too, when they go get hot dogs and food and such, and she's got some mustard on the side of her mouth, and he points it out to her, but they have that kind of quiet moment when they're looking at each other. And we know that the sparks are starting to fly and the emotions are running high. Well, they hear some music in the the, uh, the background in the distance, and they end up dancing together. And this is when Susan expresses her true feelings for Josh. Her feelings have grown for him. He tells her to hold on for a second and just looks at her and then leans in and kisses her. And it's a really sweet first kiss. The kiss leads to something else, meaning they go back to her place and it's sexy time. Not like that. Not gross. Like I just said, we see them standing right in front of one another and things are getting intimate. She takes off her blouse, and I love this moment. She actually reaches past him and turns off the light, but Josh is looking at Susan's chest. She's still wearing her bra, but this is a first for Josh. All of this, we have to remember, this is what part of the fun is, ladies and gents, and you know this if you've seen the movie, which many of you have, is that it's just watching him go through these firsts, these first times, the first date and the feelings we know that must be rushing through him as a, a flesh and blood male, right? And becoming aroused and now seeing this woman disrobe in front of him and becoming half naked, even though she is still wearing her bra. He's just in shock and stunned, but he's just staring at her and it's really adorable. It's amazing. And she reaches past him to turn off the light, which she does. And he immediately reaches back and turns the light back on. <laughs> it's like Love you can't that. get enough. It's such a great moment because he wants to take her all in. He wants to remember or just see her. And she says, you want to keep the light on? And he's like, yeah. And then he finally takes her cue. And it's really, really sweet. This is by no means, by any stretch of the imagination, gratuitous. He touches her breast with his right hand and caresses her breast. And she is actually apparently turned on by this because of his gentle touch. He's This is a first for him. He's just feeling her out, literally and figuratively. And I don't mean that in any kind of obscene way. It's really, really sweet. And she's enjoying his touch. And I absolutely love this next month because you see the bra strap fall off her shoulder, which I think may have been by accident, but it works. And she pulls him in. He goes to her to kiss her again. And you see him reach his right hand over her shoulder. And it seems like he's going to caress her shoulder. But it's this thing we do, you do. He's still cupping his hand. His hand is slightly cupped as if it's that thing where you never want to wash your hand again. Because I finally touched a breast. And it's brilliant. I wish I knew if this was a conscious choice or if his hand was just in that position, but it looks as if though he keeps his hand in this position, like, oh my God, I just touched a breast. I, I absolutely love it. And that's it. Cut. We don't need to see anything else. We know what happens after that, but it is wonderful because they do that 
the uh, typical next day. Guess who's got a big old smile on his face, kind of skipping through the office? Well, that would be Josh Baskin because he just made love to Susan the night before. So I don't know if you have anything else to add to that, but it's really quite romantic and kind of innocently so. I find it, it's a very tender moment. I do laugh when she shuts the light out and then he immediately, I mean, like a second go by and he's like, nope, turn this back on. I, I, this is the first for me. I want to see this. And once again, it's, it's a misinterpretation. It's, oh, okay. You want to, you want to do it with the lights on. Okay. I'm kind of into that right now. (laughs) It's just so funny. Yeah. Yeah, It's smart. Yeah. Again, it's smart. This whole interaction, this romance is kind of a comedy of errors, but not really because it all works. There's a misunderstanding. From both of them, neither understands why or what, but it still works. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Yeah. And I know some people are like, well, that's creepy because she's like, come on, let's not. We'll just roll with it. Okay. He's a 30 year old man. I I get it. You you have, but yeah, you got to let go of that. He's in a 30 year old man's body. Yeah. And she doesn't know otherwise. It'd be different if she knew that he was a 13 year old really on the inside. She has right. no knowledge of that. Right. And it's addressed how her attitude towards him changes when she finds out because we have that end scene in the car mm-hmm. and he wants to give her a last kiss and she just kisses him on the forehead. See, there you go. Smart. She totally changes. Yes. Her- I, I find it to be a very tender scene and I think it's played well. I mean, they could have played for laughs and he's kind of groping her, but. No, he he really makes it a moment, and that's what just makes it work for me. Yeah, you bring up a good point, because it could have gotten into a real comedy of errors with fumbling around in bed and he being awkward and clumsy and she either being annoyed or extremely uncomfortable in the situation. And it just didn't have to be that way, but that's smart filmmaking. That's They're making smart choices for the most part in this movie. It's good direction. Yeah. They had good ideas here in how to handle everything and that the whole overall tone is meant to be light and but still bittersweet in moment you know yep i do have one more favorite scene to tack on here and this one is i'm calling billy lets him have it well at this point we know that josh has slowly acclimated and has become accustomed to his new life his new working life as an adult working at mcmillan toys and moving up the ranks and thus He's taken on more responsibility, not to mention he's begun this potentially new romance with Susan. And thus, Billy, his best friend, has taken a back seat. And Billy feels it. And we see it right away when it's Josh's birthday and we get the idea that Billy's either taking him out or they both gone to get to an Italian restaurant, which looks great. There's a guy that's entertaining with throwing pizza dough balls around the restaurant. It just looks like a lot of fun and the pizza looks delicious, etc., After they get done eating, they come back out and it's still light out and Billy wants to continue hanging out. However, we know Josh has a date. So uh, he goes on that date, which I just described. Well, now we see that Billy has kind of fallen by the wayside. However, he now being it six weeks later or so receives an envelope in the mail and it happens to be the list of game machines from the Consumer Affairs Office, which they were expecting, which might have the location of the Zoltar machine. It might tell them where the Zoltar machine is now 
been placed so they can go and reverse Josh's wish and he can return to his younger self. So Bill tries to, Bill, <laughs> Billy tries to call Josh's office to tell him about the fact that he got the list in the mail, but he's basically blown off. And then finally, Billy excitedly decides to take the list down to the office downtown in New York. So he takes it in person, rushes through the lobby and right past Josh's secretary and into his office and locks the door behind him and goes to approach Josh. But Josh is on an important business call and won't engage in this conversation. Josh tells him, just come back at lunch. Don't don't bother me. And Billy ends up hanging up the phone for Josh in the middle of the call to get his attention. And this does not make Josh happy. He gets up and he rushes to the door, opening the door to tell the secretary, get whomever it was back on the line. And Billy's just trying to get his attention. Why can't he get Josh's attention? And Josh tells him that he needs to leave. I got a deadline to meet. Gosh. And this is when Billy puts his foot down and he says, who the fuck do you think you are? Josh is like, hey. Billy says, you're Josh Baskin. Remember you broke your arm on my roof? You hid in my basement where Robert Dyson was about to rip your head off. Josh is like, you don't get it, do you? This is important. And Billy replies with, I'm your best friend. What's more important than that, huh? And he goes to leave and then turns around and says, and I'm three months older than you are, asshole, and storms out. <laughs> it's just great because Billy drops an F-bomb and he lets Josh have it. He puts him in his place and says, don't forget who you are. Don't forget what our goal was here. And don't forget that I am your best friend and I miss you is kind of what he's saying, too, at the same time underneath it all. And it's emotional. And this is what kind of snaps Josh back to reality. And it sets him off on this journey where he ends up going back to the suburb, to where he lives, to see all the other kids playing, to see what he's been missing out on as a kid. And he sees, I believe, is, isn't is it his, I don't know if it's his eighth grade class graduating or what's it like they're taking it's a, a graduation school picture. photo, school picture, and all these things. And it's like, oh, this is where I'm supposed to be. But- None of that, I don't think, probably would have happened had Billy made the effort to go down to the office, to Macmillan Toys, to get into Josh's office and put his foot down, make the statement. So again, I want to give credit to Jared Rushton as Billy Kopecki, because he's great in this scene. I don't. Do you have anything to add on to that, Bill Band? No, I love this scene too. I think what I just love about it is, hey, that's what best friends do for you. They Yeah, right try to right the ship when they see you're sinking and try to help you out. And he just goes in there and just, Hey, this is what we've been waiting for. And you've been ignoring me snap out of your 13 year old kid. It's time for you to become a 13 year old kid again. Josh has lost sight of that. Yeah. Sometimes it just takes a friend to snap you back into reality. And, and that's what he does in that brief moment. Uh, just with those four lines. And it's like, hey, remember, you're a 13-year-old. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, you nailed it. It's what best friends should do for each other is always remind them who they really are. And not in a bad way, like in a good way. Just don't forget who you are. Be true to yourself. Don't get lost. Don't try to be something you're not. Yep. Good stuff. 
All right. Well, that's all I got for favorite scenes and moments. Did you have anything else, Bill Ben? Nope. That is all I have. So it's time to move on to Swiss Cheese and Complaint Department. And why do we call it Swiss Cheese? Although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. Yes, and if it doesn't have any holes, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. All right, Jason, what do you got for Swiss cheese or complaints? Well, let me say this first. This movie is a huge just-go-with-it movie. So there's many, many holes in this. We all know it. But as an audience, we understand the conceit of the film. We understand what is going on here. And thus, an initial suspension of disbelief has been established. And that's what we do in this particular situation. So we forgive a lot of the holes. I just want to say that. All right. So I would say just my biggest complaint about this movie, and I understand you have to do this because you have to get Josh out of the house, is the fact that we never get the mother to understand that adult Josh is young Josh. Like she never gets it. So Josh wakes up in the morning, sees that he's an adult, leaves the house. So the mom thinks that Josh has left the house to go to school and he runs out to find the Zoltar machine and then realizes it isn't there. And he comes back to tell his mom what happened. Mm -hmm. So the mom's in the house and she's vacuuming. And now a strange man has come into her house. Yes, that would be shocking. I get it. But. Josh is trying to explain to her what had happened and is giving facts of who Josh is. And she's not listening. And the other thing, too, is Josh would look like his dad, who we've only seen briefly. That's why I couldn't remember if we saw the dad in this movie. Mm -hmm. So there would be some kind of familiar look to older Josh. So if Josh kind of took after his mom's looks, maybe she was like, why does this gentleman look like my brother? Why does he look like my husband? And you would think that would kind of get her to calm down enough to hear him out. Okay, if that doesn't happen and Josh leaves as it happens in the film. Okay, but then Billy understands what's going on. So why doesn't Billy go to Mrs. Baskin and explain and even though she doesn't believe, it still plants something, a seed in her. Like, wait a second. So that guy that was in my house, you're telling me, is Josh, even though she might not believe it, why would Josh's best friend do that? Right. So then maybe that would give her a reason to seek this, this man out to find out what's going on. All the information that he's given is, I mean, technically there is a, a mistake because he says what his birthday is and then we see it on the milk cart. It's different birthdays. Okay. All right. That's just an error that happened. Whatever. But if he knows everything about Josh, he's not trying to bring any harm onto the mom or maybe Josh would try to then seek out his dad, go to the other parent. Because even my kid had that thing where if my mom, mom's not going to let me do this, let me ask dad if dad's going to let me do this. It's the same thing here. Okay. I tried to speak and rationalize with my mom. It didn't work. Let me go find my dad and see if I can talk to him and rationalize. It blows up the whole movie if they believe him, but it is a whole. I, I agree. That's interesting. I actually didn't think about that. I, I just didn't think about the alternatives, different ways to try and calm the mother down, Mrs. Baskin, to explain to her the situation, to get her to either believe or at least entertain the possibility that this magical event has happened. Valid points, man. I totally agree. 
there are different things that different choices they could have made here. And, you know, my my complaint relates to the character of Mrs. Baskin as well. And I mentioned it very early in our podcast is that I just feel terrible. I wish there was that she wasn't left to believe that her son had been kidnapped because she must be absolutely tortured this entire time. Exactly. Because this movie is so much fun on one end of the spectrum. And then to imagine what she must be going through on the other end, if this has been happening, like we've discussed, either anywhere from six weeks to four months, that's a freaking long time for Mrs. Baskin and the missing Mr. Baskin to have lost their son. It's awful. I'll just jump to it now. It's like if they were to reboot this movie, and I'm sure they will at some point, when they remake this, I have no doubt that storyline will would be altered in some way or adjusted so it wouldn't be such a heart-wrenching issue for for the Baskins. Yeah, because that's hard because how do you do scenes with the mom when all she's going to be is devastated because her kid is kidnapped and she's heard from the supposed kidnapper. So that even makes it worse. She's always living with that, her thinking he could kill my son or torture my son any day. And that even makes it worse. Yeah, I mean, and now we're, we're supposed to think that it her pain has been eased somewhat because Josh does make the phone call to her in the middle of the movie, but it's just not enough. And I'd be like, well, if you're going to remake this, you should stick to the 80s movie trope, which is don't have the parents at all. <laughs> in it. Yeah, true. Josh is home. Uh, maybe it's a babysitter that's dealing with it, which could be even more comical somehow. Maybe Josh is home alone. I don't know. So yeah, just had to comment on that. And yes, another complaint has to be the fact that Josh's dad disappears completely. Yep. I, I totally forgot he was in it. We see him at the carnival and then he's gone. Nothing from dad. There's a lot of holes you can cut. Look, Billy cuts class to hang out with Josh, but how many times? And would the school be calling Billy's parents at some point? And how is Billy affording the bus to get downtown every day or night to hang out with Josh? I'm like, okay, so we know that Billy stole his dad's emergency fund from his dad's sock drawer to help Josh basically fund his living for his living expenses, et cetera, until he starts making money working at McMillan Toys. But Billy's still got to get around. Where's his finances coming from? There's a, there's a lot of questions. Yeah, I definitely have money issues on this. Right. And basically, I forgive all of that. I don't, we don't need to think about that. It's just, these are, I'm sure many listeners were probably thinking of too, and they're seeing the movie again. Uh, here's one thing, though, I would have liked to seen is that we do see Josh is an older man, as a 30-year-old man now getting the stubble, right? He's got the five o'clock shadow. He's probably now staying at St. James Hotel. He's up all night. He's unshaven. And then it cuts to like the next day and he's totally clean shaven. And I'm like, oh, we didn't even get to see the that like the, essential the Nick scene. scene. Yeah. Right. Where... Josh learns how to shave for the first time. Billy has to bring him a razor and some shaving cream. But I was like, oh, when did when did Josh learn how to shave? It's just one of those, you know, coming of age things for a man, right? Yeah. Yeah, I can watch it all on YouTube. That's true. That's true. Yeah, it would have been fun to see a little bit more of those first as an adult. Mm -hmm. I had one more issue, and that would be, I'm not sure that Susan's realization like final realization that josh is a kid is really a kid totally works for me now we haven't talked about the fact that there is a special edition or an extended edition of this movie that has almost a half an hour more footage 
Yeah. Say at like 20 to or 25 minutes or something like that. Because there is a scene, obviously, in this theatrical cut where Josh tries to explain to Susan that he's really a 13-year-old kid and she's not buying it, thinking that he's making excuses to break up with her or whatnot. Well, then they go to make the presentation, the marketing presentation for this new idea that Josh came up with for this comic book choose your own adventure idea. And he walks out of the room. And then Susan realizes, oh, she starts putting it together. I forget. Maybe you can help me out here, Bill. At this point in the movie, what is the the like the moment where she she's like, oh, he really is a kid. Because if I'm not mistaken, Billy. Oh, Billy. Oh, that's what happens right before that scene. Billy has come to the office and slams down a piece of paper on Josh's desk with the word C Point Park. I found it. C Point Park is where the Zoltar machine is. Right. And then Josh has to go into the, the boardroom and make the, the presentation with Susan to present this game idea he has, but he can't follow through with it, is too consumed with the fact that he needs to go find the Zoltar machine. But in between all of that, Susan it, makes she the sees Billy? Yeah, she does she see Billy. Billy yeah. And that's kind of like she puts it together. And it's like, I, I don't know. So my point with bringing the extended edition up is that she, previous to this, does, I think, find his ID and his wallet and sees the Zoltar machine card that says your wish is granted and realizes that Josh was telling the truth, which adds a little bit more to the fact that she buys that. Oh, yeah. Oh, I guess he's right. Yeah, Josh really is a kid. Did it work for you? Not really. I thought it was weird that he leaves a presentation midway through. Just finish. Well, that's also a thing I had because it's like, did they decide to develop the game or not? Yeah. It would have been nice to see them playing with it at some point or something to see if it actually went into production. We'll never know. It's fine. It's fine. We got You know, the movie's got to move along and we got to have an ending. So it's fine. I just thought her realization that he actually as a kid could have been more impactful or stronger. That's all. Yeah. That's all I got. Let us move on to, hey, it's that actor. All right. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. Who do we choose this week, Jason? This week, Bill Bant, our, hey, it's that actor is Deborah Joe Rupp as Miss Patterson. Miss Patterson has a small role in this, but she is Josh's secretary. Uh, she's actually, she only has like really brief moments, but is actually pretty comedic. Anyway, with over 300 television appearances to her credit, Deborah Jo Rupp is best known for her role as the hilarious high-strung mom, Kitty Foreman from the long-running Fox comedy show, That 70s Show. Yeah, all right. Her performance has established her as a sitcom legend, one of TV's favorite moms, Deborah Jo, reprised her role of Kitty Foreman in that 90s show for Netflix, reprising her role alongside uh, Kurtwood Smith as Red Foreman. He plays her husband. Uh, we talked about Kurtwood Smith when we did our RoboCop episode way back when, at the very, very beginning of our podcast. Yeah, like 118 episodes ago. That's right. Taking it a little bit further back, uh, Deborah Joe's memorable television roles include Phoebe's sister-in-law, Alice, on the show Friends. She was Jerry's booking agent, Katie, on Seinfeld. Also recently, she was in the show This Is Us and The Ranch. Deborah Joe was welcomed into the Marvel Universe 
with her turn as the character Mrs. Hart in WandaVision for Disney+. Plus. She did make her feature film debut here in Big with Tom Hanks. She was also in She's Out of My League, and she played Jamie Kennedy's mom in Kicking It Old School. Let's see what else. In recent years, you know what? Deborah Jo Rupp has enjoyed getting back to her theater roots. She started uh, starred off-Broadway in the one-woman show Becoming Dr. Ruth, based on the life of pioneering radio and television sex therapist Dr. Ruth Westheimer. She was nominated for both a Drama Desk Award and an Outer Critics Circle Award in the category of Outstanding Solo Performance. I also want to mention she's done a lot of voice work. Deborah Joe's lent her voice to the Emmy-winning Teacher's Pet with Nathan Lane, both the cartoon and feature film. Uh, she does a voice in Garfield, Air Buddies, various other projects with tiny animals. Deborah Joe Rupp is clearly still doing it at age 72, and she is our Hey, It's That actor this week. Yeah, I think I was surprised to see that this was her feature film debut. But hey, that's what makes her Hey, It's That actor. Yeah. Uh, moving on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have for Big? All right. Well, this is what I've got. According to Robert Loggia, on the day they filmed the famous walking piano scene at FAO Schwartz, he and Tom Hanks noticed that doubles dressed like them were on hand just in case they could not do the dance moves correctly. Thus, it became their goal to do the entire number without the aid of the doubles, and they succeeded. Awesome. So Tom Hanks, who lost the Best Actor Oscar to Dustin Hoffman for Rain Man, did win the Golden Globe for Best Actor, Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy. So at least he won something for his role in this movie. Heck yeah. Penny Marshall became the first female director to ever direct a movie that grossed more than $100 million at the box office with this movie. Crazy. Uh, so speaking of Penny Marshall, Penny said that she came up with a phrase to get Hanks into the mindset of a 12, 13-year-old. The key words for Tom were innocent and shy, she explained. 12-year-olds are not that outgoing. They're not chatty so much. So I'd always say inch, which meant innocent and shy to Tom. No one else knew what I meant saying that to him, but I would say make it inch. And he was great. She also got actor uh, David Moscow, who plays the younger Josh, to do all of Hank's scenes so she could record and show them to Tom as an example of how a kid would literally do it. I love that. Yeah, so if I tell you now from now on, make it inch. Innocent shy. Yes, innocent shy. I don't think we need that for this podcast, though. Not necessary. No. This is kind of cool. It is unknown who played Josh's baby sister, Rachel, in the movie as the child actress is uncredited in the closing credits. To this day, her identity is unknown and remains a mystery. And I love, even as adult Josh, that she recognized that that was her older brother. Yeah. That was a good little actress. <laughs> John Lovitz, who appears in Big as Josh's co-worker, Scotty Brennan, was a minor character who only shows up in a few scenes. I think there's really only the three, with Tom Hanks' first day, when they get their paychecks, and then we see him again at the party. Originally... Scotty was set to have a much bigger role in the film, but John Lovitz unfortunately got struck down with the flu in the middle of shooting, leading him to take a few weeks off. Lovitz actually got better and could have returned to the shoot, but he decided to keep things quiet to say that he got better because he actually thought that the film was going to bomb and didn't want to continue. So he was only going to go back if production called to them, and he never did. And, of course, the movie became a huge hit. And Lovett said that it was one of the biggest mistakes of his career. Oh, 
We know that the writers of on this movie were Gary Ross and and Spielberg. Recognize that name? Here's a little tidbit. Anne's brother, yeah, Steven Spielberg. He was attached to direct the film and wanted to cast Harrison Ford as Josh, but Spielberg dropped out when his son Max was born, and also due to scheduling conflicts with Empire of the Sun. Spielberg would later say that his decision to not direct the film was not to take any credit away from his sister. Let's move on to box office. So Big was released on June 3rd, 1988 in 1,132 theaters. On an estimated budget of $18 million, it grossed $114.9 million domestically and $36.7 million internationally. It debuted number two at the box office behind Crocodile Dundee 2, and held the number two spot for an additional three weeks. Big was never number one at the box office, but it stayed in the top 10 for 13 weeks straight. Big was the fourth highest grossing movie in the United States. Moving on to reviews, when growing up in the 80s, we would watch At The Movies with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips of upcoming movies. Their review of Big was unanimous, two thumbs up. Gene thought it was well-written, and Tom Hanks and Elizabeth Perkins gave fine performances. Roger liked that the movie didn't do a body-swap type of movie where you had to follow two parallel stories. It gave the movie time to develop the characters. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 98%, with an audience score of 82%, and it has an IMDb rating of 7.3. Uh, let's move on to additional thoughts and questions. What are additional thoughts and questions we have for Big I just want to throw this as an additional thought. It's really an additional fun fact. One of my dearest memories is the fact that my mom found the that scene with Tom Hanks eating the baby corn like it was corn on the cob. Uh, so amusing. Well, that scene was improvised. Just a uh, little uh, smart, smart, creative, funny acting by Mr. Tom Hanks. I do have a question, Bill Bant. Okay. Do you think in the remake, when they do it, does... Josh sleep with Susan. I still think it happens. Yeah. You don't think in the culture today it would be uh, somehow taken out or rewritten somehow? When you ask it that way, yes. Uh, I think that's wrong, though. I agree. I agree with you. But yeah, I, I think they would they would change it. I was thinking today he would probably be working at like a TikTok or Instagram or maybe be like some super influencer. Sure. That's a good call. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good question. And we could come up with all kinds of questions for a reboot. Yeah. All right. So here's a question for you. Yes, please. Okay. So would you rather be Josh staying in the apartment that first night in New York or be Billy having to go home through that neighborhood at night in New York? I can't believe you just asked that. That's brilliant, man, because that actually was the first thing I had written here. And I was switching things around. I was like, Billy and Josh go into New York City. They get Josh a hotel room, but then Billy's got to get home by himself. Tough kid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd rather be Billy only because that is if I actually were Billy, not me in the position of Billy. Because Billy seems pretty confident. Yeah, he does. He's pretty wily, pretty crafty. So I'd rather be him. Whereas Josh appears a little more, uh, I don't know what the word is, but... Maybe not quite as capable for whatever reason. He's just really raw and just doesn't doesn't have any life experience, really. So not that Billy has a ton, but he seems a little bit more. Yeah, I think if I were to classify the kids, I would say Josh was 
the book smart one where Billy was the street smart one. That's yeah. So Billy that's knows what makes some way around the streets a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Billy has been down there more with his family. I don't know. Yeah. But I thought about that when Billy says to him, like, I don't know if I would sleep here. And then he's like, okay, I'm taking off. And I'm like, Oh my God, he's leaving by himself without technically an adult with him. And you're hearing gunshots outside. Yeah. It's a rough part of neighbor, the neighborhood there, you know, it's not New York of today. Especially you had that one guy walking through Times Square, like, kill the bitch, kill her, kill her, stab her. <laughs> like, whoa. Jeez. I could see why I didn't really go to New York as a kid. Oh, yeah. I had, had the good fortune of going with my family a couple times for dance competitions. It's funny enough. Oh, okay. I adored New York City as a young boy. I was fascinated by the bright lights, big city, the whole thing. I love the city that never sleeps. I remember sleeping in the hotel room, kind of in a a high rise of sorts. It was nothing fancy, but just to look out the window to all the traffic below and that in the middle of the night, you could still hear all the horns honking and people were awake at all hours. And it was just awesome. I loved it. We got to see some good theater and stuff. Anyway, love that. Love that city. So interestingly enough, when... Josh comes up with that idea of the choose your own adventure comic book slash computer games. I was like, wait, when did that actually begin? Because I was a big fan of choose your own adventure books oh, and I games. I love those books. Yeah. It was the best thing ever. And still waiting for the choose your own adventure movies to really take off today. And I'm sure they will at some point, somehow, interactive streaming television show. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, it's got to happen. So, Let's write it, Bill Bant. Yeah, I was going to say. All right, that's our next project. Yeah, let's. we got to beat somebody to the punch, but I'm sure there's something in development. Regardless, I did a little research and found out, choose your own adventure books date back to at least 1979, with The Cave of Time being credited as one of the first book series. But it seems Adventure, or Colossal Cave Adventure, were the first computer text adventure games. My personal favorite was Zork which I've mentioned on this podcast. Yes, I'm going to say, like that name sounds familiar. That was first released in 77. I would play it in the early mid eighties on the Apple two E. There was three of those sort games. Love those. So just wanted to mention that. Here's a little fun thought that I, I found out. So we mentioned that the Seapoint Park is actually Playland Park or Rye Playland in Rye, New York. That's R-Y-E. This is the name of the town in New York. Do you know what the ticket for admission costs to Playland now? No idea. $94.99. Wow. Yeah. But I'll say this much. Check out Playland's website. It looks like it's worth every penny. It's loaded. It's got a bunch of rides for adults and kids. Covers all the bases. Looks like a blast. Still going today. I'll have to ask my wife if she's ever been there. That park has a lot of history. It's been around forever since the yeah. early like 1900s. Still doing it. Do you got any uh, other thoughts or questions? I got one more. Go for it. All right, Bill Bant, as an experiment. Okay. If you were to approach an unplugged Zoltar game machine, okay, knowing that it had the magical ability to transform you into the either younger or older version of yourself, let's say either 25 years old or maybe 75 years old, and you knew you could return to your original body in one week's time, which version of yourself would you become? Now, remember, this is knowing that you are still existing today in the present in 2024 with all the knowledge and feelings you possess. So do you choose to be a younger version of yourself 
and why, or do you choose to be an older version of yourself, and why? Oh, younger. Yeah. Well, okay. It's not, it's not even close. I mean, being the age I am now, and I'm already feeling it. I mean, I joke. I'm like, I'm checking out at 75. I don't think I want to live much longer than that unless medical breakthroughs go through the roof in the next couple of years. So, yeah, I think I'd want to be my 25-year-old self. I think, oh, my God, I would have so much fun with my kids doing all this stuff, being younger. Yeah, 25, hands down, even if it's just for a week. Yeah, it's interesting because I think about it somewhat in the context of this movie because there's part of me that is very curious as to what I will look like as a 75-year-old Okay, and what condition my body will would be in and would it then, when I returned to my 50-year-old self, go, oh, I'll look in the mirror and go, Jason, you need to take better care of yourself because when you're 75, you're falling apart. Or keep doing what you're doing. You're great as 75-year-old. You have a lot to look forward to. Or do I even want to know what I'm going to look like or end up like as a 75-year-old? So I'm like getting yeah. it. Like I'm, I'm, I might never wake up. Well, I see that's the... <laughs> I'm thinking about it. I, I did, did a little bit of a deep dive into my thoughts here and my feelings about it because I was thinking if I were to wake up tomorrow as a 25-year-old, and then once again have this this young body and and energy shooting through the roof and feeling invincible like I could take on the world, but then freaking out my family and friends. My friends would be like, what happened to you? And trying to explain it to them. Would I care? Would I feel isolated? Would I feel... Because kind of like what happens to Josh in this movie, but the reverse, going the other way, if I became younger and people either were like kind of freaked out by that but also kind of the lesson that i would learn is that i have the mind of a 50 year old in a 25 year old's body then and knowing what i know now with the body of a 25 year old that could help me in a lot of ways but i would think so much older than i was if that makes sense and there's part of me that thinks i would be like you know what i had my time as a young person i don't need to relive this or try to do more as a young person. There would be things I would clearly enjoy doing or maybe playing around with. I don't know. But maybe there was part of me that would learn to kind of leave the past in the past. And if I chose, so I'm in a strange way, I'm leaning towards being an old man for a week. Thus, when I returned to my 50-year-old self, I would have more appreciation for where I'm at today to take better care of myself so that I live a long, healthy, fruitful life, if that makes any sense. It does, but I totally disagree. Yeah. I'd wake up all arthritic and no thank yeah, well, you. <laughs> it seems like the obvious choice would be become a younger version of yourself and go right. have fun for a week, right? Yeah. I think my kids would get a kick out of it. Yeah. The other day, my daughter asked if to go ice skating. And I'm like, uh. <laughs> the 25-year-old me like, yeah, let's do it. I don't care if I fall. I'm okay. It would be rough being a 75-year-old with the mind of a 50-year-old not being able to do a lot of the things you are used to being able to do. Yeah. That would be very difficult, but might give me more of appreciation for, for being younger. And again, being like, you know what? Enjoy the time you have as a younger person. I would get the message. The message that comes across in this movie, actually. Anyway, something to think about. I think the obvious choice may still be, after all this, to be the younger version, but just thought I'd pose that question. All That's right. what I got for additional thoughts and questions. All right. So let's move on to our rating. So on a scale of one to five Zoltars, what do you give big? I'm giving this 
four big Zoltars, four big magical Zoltar machines. This is Tom Hanks flexing. You you said it, Bill Band, early on. I mean, it, this is what we and we've come to know and love about Tom Hanks. It's everything, and it's a real jumping off point. This movie for me is still laugh out loud, funny, and several moments. It is flawed, but we know where its heart lies. It's innocent fun. And as the reviews have said, it really appeals to the inner child. I mean, the supporting cast is perfect. The performances overall are, are what really sell this concept. The direction establishes the tone so we know what the movie is. And I found that watching the movie again today supported my nostalgia for it. And it still retains its magic for me. I'm glad I saw it again because Bill Bant, this movie makes me feel good. So four Zoltar machines for me. I'm in total agreement with the four Zoltars. Great chemistry with Tom Hanks and Elizabeth Perkins. Great chemistry with Tom Hanks and Jarrett Rushton. Yeah. Great chemistry yeah. with Jarrett and David Moscow. Absolutely. Robert Loja is great. We hardly touched on John Hurt as Paul as your businessman dickhead. Does a great job as that. And there's some fun scenes with Tom Hanks and John Hurd together. Yeah, this movie just made me smile. Just watching the FAO Schwartz scene in the context of the movie and not just separate just made it more exciting for me. Like I said at the beginning, this is the jumping off point for Tom Hanks. Like, if you didn't know who Tom Hanks was, I would say you could start here. I mean, unfortunately, you're going to miss Splash. But you can start here and see where his star rises. And it's a fun one. And, and, and credit to Penny Marshall with only her, yes, yeah, her second film. I mean, the first one didn't do that well. So thank God she was given the chance to even do this one. because She definitely had two strikes against her being a woman director and directing your first movie that didn't do so well at the box office that she was able to do this. Yeah, big, if you haven't seen it in a while, go back, check it out. And uh, I don't care what people say about Elizabeth Perkins supposedly sleeping with a 13-year-old. That's not what this movie is about. It's about innocence growing up and how it affects the world around you and how you are infected by that world. Love it, Bill Bant. Okay, so I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to learn more about our show, you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com. If you have any comments, questions, or recipes to share, please email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. For our next episode, we are heading to Washington, not the capital, but the state, to discuss First Blood, starring Sylvester Stallone. We hope you can join us. Have an excellent week, everyone. The space goes down, down, baby, down, down the roller coaster. Sweet, sweet, baby, sweet, sweet, don't let me go. Shimmy, shimmy, cocoa pop, shimmy, shimmy, rock. Shimmy, shimmy, cocoa pop, shimmy, shimmy, rock. I met a girlfriend, a Triscuit. She said a Triscuit, a biscuit, ice cream, soda pop, vanilla on the top. Ooh, Shelly's out, walking down the street ten times a week. I read it, I said it, I stole my mama's credit. I'm cool, I'm hot. Sock me in the stomach three more times. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world.